He loses his power when we know his face. Yet he was still out there, blending in. A man whose ordinariness was his mask. Michelle McNamara. I'll be gone in the dark, one woman's obsessive search for the Golden State Killer. This was the Golden State Killer, and this is the good, the bad, and the pure evil. Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. was born in 1945 in New York to Kathleen de Great and Joseph James D'Angelo, a U.S. sergeant. He had two sisters and a brother. Because of his father's job, they were stationed in other countries sometimes. A relative would claim when Joseph was a young boy, the family was stationed in Germany. Here, a young Joseph saw his sister being raped by two airmen in a warehouse in West Germany. When Joseph was finally arrested, one of his sisters claimed Joseph was abused by their father growing up. 1959 to 1960, he attended school in Rancho Cordiva, California. In 1961, he went to Folsom High School, receiving his GED in 1964. During his teen years, he was known to commit burglaries, as well as torturing and killing animals. In September 1964, Joseph joined the U.S. Navy and served 22 months as a damage control man on the cruiser USS Canberra during the Vietnam War. August 1968, he attended Sierra College, graduating with an associate degree in police science. 1971, he went to Sacramento State University, earning a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. He took post-guard courses and further police training, completing a 32-week police internship at Roseville Police Department. From May 1973 until August 1976, Joseph was in the burglary unit in Exeter Police, then moved to Citrus Heights. August 1978 to July 1979, he served in Auburn until he was caught shoplifting. He got six months probation and fired in the October. Joseph would be very angry being fired. He threatened to kill the chief of police and his claim to have stalked his house. May 1970, Joseph was engaged to a nursing student named Bonnie Jean Cowell. But 1971, she broke it off as Joseph was becoming abusive and very manipulative. Joseph didn't take the breakup well in fact, he threatened Bonnie with a gun demanding she marry him. This though didn't happen. So in November 1973, he married Sharon Huddle. They bought a house in Citrus House. Sharon became a divorce attorney in 1982 and the couple had three daughters separating in 1991. After Joseph was arrested in 2018, Sharon filed for divorce, having it finalized in 2019. From being fired in 1979 until 1989, Joseph's employment is unknown. From 1989 until he retired in 2017, he was a truck mechanic at the Save Mart supermarket in Roseville. He had one arrest in 1996 for not paying gas, but the charge was dismissed. For a very long time, it's believed the training ground for the criminal who would become the East Area Rapist was Fisalia. 
starting in 1973 until 1976, a total of 20 months, it's believed Joseph was responsible for one murder and 120 burglaries. It wouldn't be until April 2018 that the Visalia Chief of Police would announce they had evidence that Joseph was the culprit called the Visalia Ransacker and that he was finally captured. The burglaries statutes of limitations had run out by 2018, but Joseph was charged with the one murder of Claude Snelly in 1975, which he pled guilty to in 2020. The first recorded Fisalia ransacker incident was March 19, 1974. $50 in coins was taken from a piggy bank. The ransacker's crime consisted of breaking into homes, tossing the place, damaging items and stealing items not worth much, leaving large sums untouched, even items of high value remained. Money stolen was often from coin jars or piggy banks. Items taken included foreign money, historical coins, earrings, rings, cufflings, weapons and ammo. Multiple break-ins of this culprit on the same day happened. One to note was November 30th, 1974, when 12 were recorded. The culprit used parks, ditches and trails to get to the homes. He climbed fences, went through windows, while exiting usually back out the same window or doors or garages. He had worn items like stacks of dishes or glass bottles near doors or hanging on the handles to alert him if someone was moving inside like the owners or police. He also wore gloves, leaving no fingerprints. September 11, 1975, Joseph broke into the house of Claude Snelling. He was a journalism professor who just months before, on February 5th, had chased a prowler who was under his daughter's window. So about 2 a.m. strange noises woke Snelling. He went to investigate and found a masked intruder trying to kidnap his daughter. A standoff happened with Snelling shot twice. He limped back to his wife and later died. The intruder ran leaving a stolen bike. The daughter Beth, who was 16, underwent hypnosis to try to get more details of what happened. The Fisalia police put resources to try catch the Fisalia ransacker and a reward of $4,000, about $20,000 today, was posted. Nighttime stakeouts were set up, particularly around previously hit houses, but the crimes of the Fisalia ransacker continued. December 12, 1975, a masked man entered the backyard at about 8.30pm. Detective William McGowan was on stakeout inside a garage. The home was in an area often hit by the ransacker. McGowan would try to detain the culprit. The culprit shrieked, pulled his mask off and pretended to surrender. With McGowan approaching the culprit, he jumped over a fence, pulling out a revolver and fired, missing McGowan but shattering his flashlight. Officers rushed to help McGowan but the culprit was gone. Items collected as evidence included a flashlight, tennis shoe tracks, a blue sock full of coins and a blue chip stamps. In 1976, Joseph moved to the Sacramento area. His crimes here went from burglary to rape. At first, his patterns was to stalk middle-class areas during the night, looking for women alone in a single-story home near quick escape routes, 
like schools, trails, creeks, basically big open spaces. He was seen about many times, but always managed to get away. Victims would say they heard a noise or seen a shadowy prowler before the attacks, and many also experienced break-ins. Police would soon notice the offender with surveillance targeted neighborhood, looking through windows and prowling in the, in the yards. Then he would select a home to attack. It's thought that on occasion the prowler entered the homes of future victims to prepare for the attack, like unlocking windows, unloading guns, or planting items to use later. He would also phone the homes of future victims for months, daily at different times to gain knowledge of their routine. Joseph at first hit homes of lone women or ones with children, but eventually he started attacking couples. This change is thought to be linked to the media coverage that he only attacked women alone in their homes, indicating the easiness, possibly coward attack on vulnerable people like them. So his new method had him break in through a window or sliding door. He would make noise to wake those inside, then he threatened them with a gun. He tied them up, usually having the woman tie up the man. Joseph then blindfolded and gagged the couple with towels he ripped up. The bindings were often tight enough to cut off circulation. Then he split up the couples, taking the female to the living room where he raped her, sometimes multiple times. The men he had lay on their stomachs, stacking dishes on their backs. They were warned not to rattle one or the woman would die. Police would later report during a 1978 rape, the 37th attack, Joseph yelled over and over, I hate you, Bonnie, referring to the ex-fiancé nurse student of Joseph's. Bonnie Jean Cowell. After the rapes, Joseph sometimes went off to toss the home. Closets, drawers, he ate their food, drank their beer, raping the woman or threatening to. He would be gone for so long that the victims thought he'd left, but just as their fear lowered, Joseph would jump out from the shadows to continue his terrors. He'd steal personal objects with little valuable. He also took cash and guns. Finally, he would sneak away unaware to his victims. He escaped through yards, sometimes using a bike or car to get home. He used parks, schoolyards, creeks or any spaces keeping him off the streets. The East Area Rapist happened first in Sacramento County, June 1976 to May 1977. Then there was a three-month break with San Joaquin County in September then back to Sacramento for 10 more attacks. Summer 1978, the rapist hit five times then vanished again for three months. In October until July 1979, Contra Costa County was hit. From June 18, 1976 until July 5, 1979, 50 rapes by the East Area Rapist was committed. February 2, 1978, Near an area where five of the East Area rapes happened, a Sacramento couple, Brian and Katie McGorry, were out walking their dog. Brian was a military policeman at the Maher Air Force Base. While on their walk, there was confrontation, and the couple ran, but were chased and shot to death. At the time, suspicion fell on the East Area rapist because of the area of the murder and a shoelace was found nearby. 
June 15, 2016, the FBI announced they were confident that the East Area Rapist murdered the couple. June 29, 2020, Joseph entered a plea of guilty to the murder of the McGorries. After the last rape on July 5, 1979, Joseph moved to Southern California. Here he started killing his victims, first hitting Santa Barbara County in October. The attacks went on until 1981, although there was one similar in 1986. Only one couple, the first attacked, lived and were able to alert their neighbours. The intruder fled before help arrived. The other victims were murdered, shot to death, death or bludgeoned to death. Because Joseph wouldn't be connected to the crimes for many years, the crimes at the time were called that of the Night Stalker, changed to the original Night Stalker after serial killer Richard Ramirez took the Night Stalker name. Going through the original Night Stalker crimes, it began October 1st, 1979. An intruder broke into a Goletta home and tied up the couple. As the intruder was leaving the room, the couple heard him whisper to himself, I'll kill him. Freaked out, they tried to escape while the intruder was out of the room. The woman managed to get a scream out. The intruder felt this alarm someone, so he fled by bike. The scream did indeed alert a neighbour who happened to be an FBI agent. He came in response to the noise and went after the intruder. He found an abandoned bike and knife as the intruder continued to flee through the backyards. The crime would later be linked to the next crime by shoe prints found and twine used on the victims. December 30th, 1979, Robert Offerman and Deborah Manning were found shot to death at Robert's condo in Goleta. Robert's bindings were loose, suggesting he lunged at the attacker. Neighbours reported hearing gunshots. At the scene, paw prints were found. Robert didn't own a dog, so it's believed the killer had a dog with him. Leaving the intruder, broke into the next door residence, an empty one. He stole a bike, discarding it later on a street north of the crime scene, which was found by another resident of the complex. March 15, 1980, Charlene Smith and Lima Smith were found murdered in their home. Charlene had been raped. A log was found to be the weapon to bludgeon the couple to death. The log came from a wood pile at the side of the house. Their wrists and ankles were tied with curtain cord. The tie of the knot was strange, a Chinese knot, a diamond knot. The same knot was used on at least one of the East Area Rapist case. From this, the killer was called the Diamond Knot Killer for a time. August 19, 1980, Keith Harrington and Pat Patrice Harrington were found bludgeoned to death at their home in Dana Point's Nigel Shores, a gated community. Patrice had been raped. Evidence showed that both victims' wrists and ankles were bound. They were just married three months and Patrice was a nurse and Keith a medical student. From the death, Keith's brother, Bruce, would spend $2 million supporting California Proposition 69, authorising DNA collection from all California felons. February 6, 1981, Moella Whithoon was found murdered and raped in her home. 
Her husband was away and she was home alone. A TV was found in the yard and it's believed the killer was trying to stage it looked like a botched robbery. Manuela looked to be tied up before she was bludgeoned but no weapon or ties were found. July 27, 1981, Sherry Domingo and Gregory Sanchez were found murdered, the 10th and 11th murder victims. They were attacked at a resident of Sherry's, re Sherry's relative where they were temporary searing. The killer came in through a bathroom window. Gregory was not tied up. He was shot in the cheek and bludgeoned with a garden tool. Again, no neighbours raised the alarm after hearing gunshots. Gregory's head was under clothes from the closet. Sherry was raped and bludgeoned to death. Her wrists and ankles had bruises indicating they were tied. Shipping twine was found near the bed and fibres of something were scattered over the body. May 4th, 1986, Janelle Cruz was found raped and murdered at her home. Only 18, she was home alone while her family was on holidays in Mexico. Her stepfather would report a pipe wrench missing after, which is believed to be the weapon. These cases weren't linked at first, although a Sacramento detective did believe the East Area Rapist was responsible. It wasn't until many, many years later the cases were linked almost entirely by DNA testing. In December 1977, a poem called The Excitement's Crave was sent to the Sacramento Bee, a daily newspaper. It was also sent to the Sacramento Mayor's Office and the TV station KVIE. The poem claimed to be from the East Area Rapist. The poem reads as follows, quote, All those mortals survive in birth, upon facing maturity, take inventory of their worth to prevail in society. Choosing values become a task. Oneself must seek satisfaction. The selected route will unmask character when plans take action. Accepting some work to perform at fixed pay but promise for more is a recognized social norm. As is decorum seeking lore. Achieving while others lifting should be cause for deserving fame. Leisure tempts excitement, see king. What's right and expected seems tame. Jesse James has been seen by all and son of Sam has an altar. Others now feel temptation call. Sacramento should make an offer. To make a movie of my life that will pay for my planned exile. Just now I'd like to add the wife of a mafia lord to my file. Your East Area Rapist and Deserving Pest see you in the press or on TV." End quote. In the investigations of the 42nd attack of the East Area Rapist, they found three sheets of a notebook where a suspicious car was parked. The pages were thought to be dropped by accident. The first sheet appeared to be homework essay. The second was a diary entry complaining about a teacher giving punishment with lines. And the last was a hand-drawn map which looked like a neighbourhood with the worded punishment on the back. Investigators couldn't identify the location of the map and it's believed to be a fantasy map. Phone calls would come randomly to police, victims, counselling services and newspapers claiming all sorts from 1977 until 2001. 
The first call came March 18, 1977 to the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office. Three calls in total from a man claiming to be the East Area Rapist, none were recorded. The first two were made at 4.15pm and 4.30pm, having the caller laugh and hang up. At 5pm, the caller spoke, saying, quote, I'm the East Side Rapist and I have my next victim already stalked and you guys can't catch me. End quote. That night in Rancho Condora, a victim was reported. December 2nd, 1977, a call came to the Sacramento Police Department. The caller said, quote, You're never going to catch me, East Area Rapist, you dumb fuckers. I'm going to fuck again tonight. Be careful. End quote. That night in Foss Hill Farms, a victim was recorded. December 9th, 1977, the phone of a previous victim rang. Wendy answered, a man creepily said, quote, Merry Christmas, it's me again, end quote. December 10th, 1977, a call came into Sacramento Police at about 10pm. The caller said, quote, I am going to hit tonight, what avenue, end quote. This call was recorded as the one on December 2nd. Comparing the calls, they were made by the same person. Taking it seriously, patrols were increased that night. A masked man was seen on a bike at about 2am, but he eluded the police. He was spotted again about 4.30am. He dumped a bike, which was stolen, and fled on foot. No victims were recorded that night. January 2nd, 1978, the first known rape victim got a call asking for Ray. It was thought to be a wrong number. It was recorded. Later that evening, another call came to the same victim, who said the caller had similar voice of the caller earlier. She also said it was her rapist's voice. The call said angrily, quote, going to kill you, going to kill you, going to kill you. Bitch, 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 fucking whore, end quote. January 6, 1978. At a counselling service, a call came in from a man claiming to be the East Area Rapist. He acknowledged he had a problem and he needed help and didn't want to do it anymore. The operator would have a short conversation with the man, but the man freaked a little, claiming he felt the call was being traced and he hung up. No victims were recorded that night. It wouldn't be until 1982 that the next call came. A previous victim was at work in a Denny's restaurant. The caller was her rapist, threatening her. It's believed by investigator Paul Holes the rapist must have been a customer and recognised his victim. Then at a later time, called to threaten her. In 1991, again a previous victim received a call from the rapist. They spoke for maybe a minute, the victim noted hearing children and a female voice in the background. This would indicate he may have had a family. A final call came April 6, 2001. The call came a day after the Sacramento Bee article linking the original Night Stalker and the East Area Rapist. The call was to a victim with the caller asking, quote, remember when we played, end quote. Before linking the original Night Stalker to the East Area Rapist, officials looked to try link the Goleta cases too. Links all were mainly based on similarity in patterns. 
in 2001, rapes in Contra Costa County, thought to be done by the East Area Rapists, were linked by DNA to the murders of Smith, Harriton, Whitton and Cruz. Ten years from the dot DNA link, they linked the Domingo Sanchez murders. Later, the East Area Rapists would be called the Golden State Killer. June 15, 2016, the FBI released more info on the cr crimes. They released sketches and details. They also announced a reward of $50,000. This new move also had a national database set up to help with the investigation and help handle tips. The game changer came using the genetic, genealogical or GED match. From this, they were able to identify distant relatives of Joseph's great-great-great-great-grandfather. From all this info, they built 25 different family trees. The tree that eventually nailed Joseph had nearly 1,000 people connected to it. Investigators used clues to rule out suspects like age, sex, place of residence. One by one, suspects were eliminated until one remained, Joseph D'Angelo. Several people were suspects, but each were later cleared. You had Brett Glasby. He was from Goleta. The Santa Barbara County suspected him, but he was murdered in Mexico in 1982, before the murder of Janelle Cruz. This eliminated him as a suspect. Paul Cornfed Schneider was another suspect. He was high up in the Aryan Brotherhood, and he was living in Orange County when the murders of Harriton, Moella, Whittle, and Janela Cruz happened. In the 90s, DNA cleared him. Joe Alsip was a suspect to Lima Smith, as he was a business partner of his. A pastor claimed Al Smith confessed to him during a family counseling session. Al Smith was arraigned for the murders in 1982, but charges were dropped, and in 1997, DNA confirmed he didn't do it. Once Joseph D'Angelo was arrested, other crimes were tried to be connected to him with similar patterns. The 1974 Fisali rape and murder of Jennifer Armour. The 1975 ex Exeter rape and murder of Donna Joe Richmond. And a 1978 murder of mother and son in Simi Valley. DNA testing proved Joseph did not do any of these three. Victoria Police in Australia thought Joseph might be Mr. Cruel, as he was known to dock at Australia during his Navy service, but this too was also ruled out. April 24, 2018, Sacramento County Sheriff deputies went out and arrested Joseph. Charges brought against him included eight counts of first-degree murder with special circumstances. On May 10th, more charges, the Santa Barbara County District Attorney added four more counts of first-degree murder. Identifying Joseph began months before, led by Detective Paul Holes and FBI lawyer Steve Kramer. They uploaded the killer's DNA profile from a rape kit in Ventura County to the GED Match website. A team of five investigators worked with a genealogist, Barbara Ray Venter, to build up a large family tree. They knocked each one off the tree until only one remained, Joseph. April 18th, officers sneakily took DNA samples from Joseph's door handle of his car. 
They also obtained a discarded tissue from his trash on the curbside of his house. These were matched to a sample linked to the Golden State Killer crimes. From his arrest and with this information, some felt it was intrusive and unethical using personal identifiable information. Arrested, Joseph would in a way confess. He would refer to an inside him personality called Jerry. He confessed that this Jerry made him do the crimes which abruptly ended in 1986. Joseph was left alone for a time in a police interrogation room. He was noted talking to himself saying, quote, I didn't have the strength to push him out. He made me. He went with me. It was like in my head. I mean, he's part of me. I didn't want to do those things. I pushed Jerry out and had a happy life. I did all those things. I destroyed all those lives. So now I've got to pay the price. End quote. The rapes and burglaries statute of limitations were expired, so he couldn't be charged for them. He was charged with 13 counts of murder and 13 counts of kidnapping. August 23, 2018, in Sacramento, Joseph was arraigned. In the November, prosecutors from six different counties came up with a cost of $20 million to the taxpayers for the case, and the case would take nearly 10 years. April 10, 2019, prosecutors announced they were going for the death penalty and the judge announced approval for cameras to be allowed in the courtroom during the trial. March 4, 2020, Joseph chanced it and offered a guilty plea, but only if the death penalty goes away. This deal was for the moment rejected. But June 29, a plea bargain was agreed and it included removing the death penalty. Joseph D'Angelo pleaded guilty to 13 counts first-degree murder under circ special circumstances. In this case, was kidnapping. August 21, 2020, Joseph D'Angelo was given multiple life sentences without the possibility of parole. Pre-sentencing would have days of victim statements. D'Angelo would briefly apologise after sentencing, saying, quote, I've listened to you, all your statements each one of them, and I'm truly sorry to everyone I have hurt." End quote. Joseph D'Angelo did all these horrific crimes while he was married raising a family. His wife and children were shocked that their perfect father could do such crimes. They never saw him as the monster. Nothing indicated he was violent. Even his wife was in total shock and always believed his reasons for being away. As of February 2021, Joseph D'Angelo was in protected custody at California State Prison, Corcoran. Thank you all for listening. Join me next time for the story of Mother Teresa. She was the founder of the Order of Missionaries of Charity, a Roman Catholic congregation of women dedicated to helping the poor. She is considered to be one of the 20th century greatest humanitarians, and in 2016, she was canonized as St. Teresa of Calcutta. Until then, this was the good, the bad and the pure evil.